Hi, I'm Rain Barry, and from wherever you're listening to the Audio Wave Cafe podcast, I really do appreciate you joining me. Okay, I think that's enough for the chat. On this episode, my guest is ex-specials guitarist and songwriter, Roddy Radiation Byers. First, I bring you music news and views, and I shine a spotlight on iconic Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we should move on. Let's go! Okay, it's music news and views time. Seems that various online music sites have been angered recently that the song Fat Bottom Girls by Queen has been removed from the band's greatest hits album on Yoto, a new audio platform for children. The company stated that the song is too raunchy for their young audience. It also posted a warning for the rest of the album saying, The lyrics in some of these songs contain adult themes, including references to violence and drugs. (laughs) Yoto, what did you expect? Queen are an old-school rock band. Sex, drugs and rock and roll was part of their DNA. (sighs) Listen guys, I'm just going to save you some time. Stop releasing albums by rock bands. What's next, a Motet or Nirvana album? Think about it. At a recent show in LA, Canadian rapper Drake stunned the audience by walking on stage and presenting a fan in the crowd, a Hermes Birkin bag, valued at more than $30,000. Great stuff. But days later, at another show, a fan threw a book at Drake, who swiftly caught it, saying, You're lucky I'm quick. I'd have had to beat your ass if it had hit me in the face. It turns out that the book was a copy of Drake's own poetry book. Ah, Drake. The fan probably wanted you to sign it or just maybe uh, exchange it for a Birkin bag. Moving on, a university in Ghent in Belgium is to run a course on their music of Taylor Swift. The person running the course said there are parallels between Taylor Swift's lyrics and English literature. Oh, wow. I guess I'm ignorant. I didn't know that. But then if Bob Dylan can win a Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 2016, then yeah, bring on university courses on, say, uh, the music of Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, why not? It's less boring than theology. Uh, Okay, next. Nile Rogers is threatening legal action against a Swiss far-right party for using a sound-alike version of We Are Family by Sister Sledge. Rogers, who wrote the song, has asked the Swiss People's Party to cease and desist from using the track, saying he wrote the ultimate song about inclusion and diversity, regardless of race and ethnicity. Don't be hard on them, now. Maybe the Swiss People's Party couldn't actually find a Swiss music track they could copy. Finally, the Jonas Brothers were performing a show in Boston recently, when Nick Jonas stepped back on stage and fell into a hole. What? Who left a hole on stage? Well, I checked out a mobile phone video and it seems he partially fell into an open trapdoor. Anyway, he recovered quickly and carried on singing. What a trooper. I don't know if the stage manager has a job though. Maybe he also fell through the trapdoor. My guest on this episode is a guitarist and songwriter. He was in the specials, and his current band is the Scarbelly Rebels. It's my pleasure to welcome on this call, Roddy Radiation Bias. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Roddy, I read in your youth you enjoyed watching the Monkey's 60s TV show. Did it inspire you to take up the guitar? 
Yeah, well, I suppose like I I got into pop music about that time, you know, about when I was about twelve, you know. Before that, I was into the Man from Hong Uncle series, and I used to <laughs> wear Paul neck sweaters, try to look like Ilya Kuryakin. Into the Monkeys, it just seemed like perfect. You know, there's all, all these guys living in a beach house, surrounded by all these pretty girls, you know, and playing music. I thought I, that's what I want to do, you know. <laughs> in 1975, you formed the Wild Boys. Was it your first band? I had a, a youth club band. We used to play like, pop music and a bit of bit of try to play the blues as well. You know, I used to play the youth club. That was it. And then, uh, so I played in working men's clubs in uh, the early seventies, like in a cover bands for about four years. And uh, the bass player from that band, I formed the Wild Boys with him, a drummer. Who later went on to play with the UK subs, Pete Davis, mainly just around Coventry. You know. The punk thing was happening, and you could play in back rooms of pubs, you know, and charge a couple of quid for people to get in. On the 1980 Sent From Coventry album, there are two tracks by the Wild Boys, We're Only Monsters and Lorraine. Did you write those songs? Yeah, I wrote them too, yeah. What happened uh, when I uh, left, uh, the Wild Boys split up, you know, the, the, my version of them, and then my brother took over the, the name with some of his mates, you know. And they also uh, played some of my old songs, you know. So they uh, did Lorraine and uh, Were Any Monsters, you know. Well, you know, I was listening to Were Any Monsters on YouTube a few days ago. I think it could have been a hit song. It was kind of Mark Bowen influenced, you know, like the, the the lyrics are like very bad poetry, I suppose, or, you know, kid stuff. Uh, but uh, say so Jerry Dammers, I tried to get the specials to do it and, he said it wasn't good enough, so uh, there you go. You then left the Wild Boys to join the Coventry Automatics, who became the Specials. You know, I used to see Jerry Dams, the keyboard player, band leader, around, you know, he liked to drink, same as I did, you know, and we'd, we'd bump into each other at different pubs and uh, parties and all the rest of it. So we kind of got to be friends, I guess, and uh, he asked me uh, in the nightclub one, one evening if I fancied uh, playing on uh, some demos that were, the computer mathematics we're doing in London. And I said, you know, yes, uh, why not? And uh, I forgot all about it by the next morning when uh, Jerry came around with Pete Waterman, of all people. We went down to, to London, to Soho, and uh, I, I played on the, the early demos that the automatics did, which didn't see the light of day until the 90s. Did you think you'd have more opportunities with that band than with the Wild Boys? Virgin Records came to check out the Wild Boys at a nightclub in Coventry, and we had a bad night that night. The bass player's amp broke, so he, he plugged into the PA, so you couldn't hear the vocals. So they obviously didn't want to sign us up, you know, so that was up blown. And I just got married at the time, and, uh, you know, I just thought I wanted to move to London to, to join a punk band, I suppose, you know, and, uh, but I didn't in the end, and uh, Jerry asked me, and I ended up joining what became The Specials. In early 1979, The Specials recorded their first single, Gangsters, at Horizon Studios in Coventry. Did you feel back then the band was going to be big? Well, I, I kind of got into reggae, mostly through Bob Bob Marley, you know, and I, I never really was into the Scar stuff in the, in the at the time. But uh, I, I listened to a bit of dub and that, so and a lot of bands like The Clash and the members and that were all, all like doing a bit of reggae and, and incorporating like reggae stuff into their music and uh, it, it was the best bet at the time you know? well I kind of hoped it, it would be successful 
But, you know, my main idea was to do it for a while and then uh, get my own band back together again. You made your name as the lead guitarist in the specials, Coventry's most successful band. Is it true the band also brought you a lot of grief? Well, the thing was with Jerry Dammers, he got all different musicians, more different bands in Coventry and threw us all together. So we were never really close friends to start with, with all different lifestyles and tastes in music. So uh, we tended to rub against each other occasionally. So the only time we ever hung out together was when we had to, really. When Elvis Costello was producing the special's first album, he told the band to get rid of you. Why was that? Well, I think Elvis Costello, he'd been listening to a lot of 60s reggae and ska, and he didn't hear like my sort of Chuck Berry, Johnny Thunder's style guitar in the, in that music. I think it was Charles Sharp Murray said that I played incongruous guitar playing, I meaning I didn't fit in with the reggae thing, but that, that became the style, you know, ska punk, as they called it, you know, and bands like Rancid... Uh, carried on from there you know so he he told the band to get rid of me but uh they didn't <laughs> well you know i think it was your style of playing that helped establish the special's unique sound there's nothing really that new in music it's just a matter of how you put things together so like having me sort of doing that sort of uh say rock and roll punk clash style guitar on top of jerry's idea it, it became a different sound i suppose you know, and we we all adopted that rude boy mod image as well. In 2006, Amy Winehouse covered your song, Hey Little Rich Girl, on her Back to Black album. That must have been a great moment for you. A friend of mine told me, you know, and uh, I, I got in touch with my publisher straight away, and, uh, and he said, uh, well, how much do you want? You know, and I said, well, 20 grand would be nice. You know. <laughs> so they sent me a cheque for 20 grand, you know, which... Uh, I went out and bought an old vintage Gibson gold top and a, a new amp. <laughs> I didn't quite make as much as I hoped I would, you know, out, out of her covering. I, and I did thank her when she guest, guested with us at uh, Glastonbury, I think it was. She came on and I thanked her afterwards for, you know, for covering the song. So you never got around to collaborating on writing any songs with Amy? Apart from meeting her two or three times, you know, that... Uh, different events you know and gigs and that she was more interested in terry anyway like she was hung on to terry's arm all the time looking goo goo eyes at him you know she, she didn't really want to talk to me you know so uh that's fair enough apart from like that quick shout out at the end of i think it's when we come off stage at glastonbury i just said a quick thank you to her you know and she said her she said her friend wanted to marry me I said, I'm sorry, I'm already married, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Roddy, can you tell me something about your songwriting process? Well, normally it's, uh, I get a riff together, maybe a title, maybe a hook line, you know, like a chorus, and uh, and fill in the gaps. Start off with the first verse, and, you know, it's not not always the same. Sometimes write the lyrics for months before, after I've written a riff, you know then you kind of like hope you haven't uh, stolen it from someplace. You know, my, my bad habit was I always used to pick song titles that had been used before, you know. Yeah, but I'm sure most songwriters have done that. It's really hard to come up with an original title. Uh, your current band is the Scarbly Rebels, formed 20 years ago. Has it been the most satisfying period of your music career? The Wild Boys was like my band, you know. So um, the specials, it was always a kind of a battle 
with me and Jerry Dammers trying to, you know, for me trying to get my songs in, like Rat Race. Originally, the band didn't want to do it. It's like the three guys that were ex-college boys thought I was having a dig at them, you know. It wasn't, but like, you know. So it was always a, a constant battle. So when I got the Scobby Rebels together, it was it was like, I, I'm it's my band. So, uh, you know, I, I could call the shots again. So obviously that was more enjoyable. It's the same with the, the Tearjerkers, a band I formed just before the original special split. You know, that was like seven years of uh, not exactly uh, successful, but uh, a lot more fun, you know. Because it was, because it was uh, what, I, what I wanted to play, you know. It's kind of like Hank Williams meets The Clash, you know. I think they called it Cowpunk at the time. <laughs> Cowpunk. Yeah, there was, there was a few bands doing kind of Americana, I suppose they'd call it now, you know. But that's what I was into, you know, and that's my main kind of influences now, you know. So do you have any important gigs or projects coming later this year? I'm going to California in November with uh, my American uh, band. We might be going uh, over the border as well to Tuana, and like maybe Vegas, up to San Francisco, LA, Long Beach. So I've, I've done that a few, a few times in the past. We're only playing sort of small clubs and bars and that, you know, but uh, it's a lot of fun and I get away from the, the horrible English weather as well. <laughs> so will playing those bars and clubs be enough to cover all your expenses? I kind of just about break even. It's not a, it's not a money making thing, you know. I know you've played with the Scapos. Paul Willow was a previous guest of mine. Uh, they're doing a short tour of the states there. I think they've done one already over there. Yeah, Paul Williams, the singer, is a good friend of mine. He wrote a book on the uh, on the specials. I stuck a lot of photographs in the early days, so he used all them. There's like pictures of uh, Terry Hall putting his eyeliner on. And Jerry Dammer's washing his socks in the sink in his underpants. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just, I just, I used to try and catch people on the way, you know. <laughs> a couple of years later, like, uh, he had to probably turn around and punch me because we were, you know, the last thing you want to do is someone have a photograph of, you know, taking photographs of you when you're looking your best. I remember the interview with Paul. He's a singer in the Scapaz. Yeah, a really nice guy. Oh, yeah, he's salt of the earth, you know. Of all the YouTube videos I've seen, you're playing a different Les Paul on every video. How many do you own? Uh, not so many now. In the mid-80s, after the original band split up, I was broke, and uh, I had a family by then. So I had to sell most of my guitars. I had some vintage Gibsons, you know. Broke my heart, you know, but you've got to feed your kids, you know. So I, I did get a couple more later on. And then when the specials reunion in 2009, tried to get a deal with Gibson, but I didn't want to know. But uh, Gretsch did, so I ended up uh, changing over to Gretsch. You know? So I play uh, Gretsch Penguin quite a lot, which is like, very similar to... Gibson Les Pauls, the same shape and all that. <laughs> so you weren't famous enough for Gibson then? I think they offered me uh, some used semis, I think, but I've still got a fair few. But compared to some guitarists, I haven't got, you know, I've probably got uh, eight or nine decent guitars and a few sort of, uh, I don't know, ones I've bought because I like the look of They're not particularly brilliant, you know. Yeah, I have a few of them. I've got to ask you this. When you retire... Will you be able to live off your royalties? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, well, the thing is, I, I probably see at most nowadays a couple of grand a year from specials uh, royalties, if that, you know. Me and the wife barely care for and saved a bit of money. So 
I'm not going to starve, you know, but, you know, I've, I've paid my house off now, so I got my pension, <laughs> my Musicians' Union pension. I've been a union member since 79, so that's going to get me a bag of chips at least <laughs> a week, you know. <laughs> thing is with the with the specials like Jerry Dam was uh, obviously he, he wrote Ghost Town and that so they were, they were the big earners you know the Rat Race got to number six in the chart so I got a bit of money from that Hale Rich Girl because of Wayne, uh, Amy and that you know we never cracked the stage we toured uh, twice and, and Jerry Dam was our leader hated America and he didn't like flying much either on our first trip the LA Times interviewed Jerry and said, uh, what do you think of America so far? He said, like, and he said, well, I had more fun on a school trip to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> which, hard, which hardly went down very well, obviously, you know. We were doing two shows a night at the Whiskey A Go-Go in LA, Hollywood, you know. So 16 shows over eight days or whatever, something like that. We were absolutely burned out. Doing our kind of shows, which were full on, dancing and all the rest of it, two shows a night was a killer. Christmas Records came in after we'd done a, a few nights, I guess. They said, can you all put your suits back on and uh, have some photographs taken with you know the, the bosses of the Chrysalis America? You know? And Jerry goes, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so we, all, we all joined in. You know? They stopped pushing the record after that. And that was the end of our sort of uh, making it big in America, you know. It felt good at the time. We, we still had that kind of punk attitude, I suppose, and a lot, a lot of English bands don't crack the state for that reason. You're supposed to shake hands and dock your cap and, and all the rest of it, but we just weren't very respectful, that's all. You know? In other ways, I don't, I'm, I'm glad we didn't crack the states because we'd have probably all gone crazy. We all went mad enough as it was. You know, I've, I've lost a lot of friends over the over the years in, in the music business to drink and drugs and all the rest of it, you know, like, it's a very tough game, you know. It's more mental sometimes, as well as the physical travelling and the uh, dancing about on stage and the sweating and all the rest of it. You go from, like, playing in these little pubs in Coventry and suddenly everyone wants to talk to you and your friends treat you differently and people stare at you. It wasn't so bad for me because I was a big band, you know, and, like, it's Terry Hall that got most of the attention, you know. He got so he couldn't even... He couldn't even leave his flat in Coventry because he just got stared at all the time. Right? And I'd go to the pub and people would have a go at you, you know, say, are you rich so-and-so? Like, buy us a drink, you know. Well, it's a good moment to wrap up this interview now, Roddy. Uh, any final words? Horace said I was a loose cannon, you know, which meant I didn't conform to the, the band rules in dress or music-wise. But that's what made the band. We were all very different individuals. Roddy, thanks so much for being my guest. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, then, Ray. Thank you very much. Memphis in the early 1950s was a melting pot of musical styles, which included blues, gospel, boogie and country. And the artists and bands performing in the many bars and clubs always had many recording studios to choose to record their music. And so it was in this creative, exciting environment that Sam Phillips opened a new recording studio on Union Avenue on the 3rd of January 1950, called Memphis Recording Service, with the slogan, We record anything, anywhere, anytime. Better known later as Sun Studios, the birthplace of rock and roll, because of a single recorded there in 1951, called Rocket 88 by Jackie Brenton and his Delta Cats, 
who were actually, I believe, Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm, released on the Chess Records label, it got to number one in the Billboard R&B chart. Encouraged by a success with Rocket 88, Phillips launched his own record label in 1952, called Sun Records, and in the following year, he got his first hit record with Bearcat by Rufus Thomas, but was sued for copyright infringement. Yeah, it was crazy, really. Phillips changed the lyrics, but kept the chord structure and melody to Hound Dog, which had already been a hit for Big Mama Thornton. How did he think he'd get away with it? Anyhow, he treated his mostly black artists with respect and did much to break down racial barriers in the music industry, but was also interested in attracting a wider audience. Phillips said that if he could find a white man who had the Negro sound and feel, he could make a billion dollars. Well, in 1953, 18-year-old Elvis Presley walked into the lobby of a Sun recording studio looking to record a song for his mother, as the studio had advertised that anyone could walk in off the street and make a record, all for only $3.25. It said that Elvis was also hoping to be discovered. That did not happen for almost a year as Phillips couldn't see anything original in Elvis's voice. That's until one night, after an unproductive recording session, Elvis suddenly picked up the guitar and started playing Arthur Crudup's That's All Right. Scotty Moore and Bill Blackman spontaneously joined Elvis on guitar and bass. Phillips in the control room quickly realised that this was the sound he had been looking for. Within weeks, That's All Right and Flipside Blue Moon of Kentucky were in the charts with many saying that they thought the singer was black. Other artists soon followed Elvis, like Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis and many more. By 1959, Phillips outgrew the studio and moved to new premises just a few blocks away. At one time, the original studio building later became a plumbing company office and a car parts shop. It wasn't until 1987 that Gary Hardy reopened Sun Studios as a working recording studio and tourist attraction. And uh, you can visit it too. It's not hard to find. It's on the intersection of Marshall Avenue and Highway 70. It's an odd-shaped red brick building with a large Gibson semi-acoustic guitar mounted above the main entrance. Sun Studios does look surreal. It's surrounded by modern dull offices. It stands out. It's unique, as it should be, being the birthplace of rock and roll. Coming up is a track written by Roddy Radiation and performed by his band, The Scarbelly Rebels, which was also covered by Amy Winehouse on her Back to Black album, Hey Little Rich Girl. Mum bought you a fat Let's go. 
Hey Little Rich Girl, recorded by Roddy Radiation and the Scarbilly Rebels. And thanks so much, Roddy, for being my guest. Coming up on the next episode will be singer-songwriter Paul Gibson. I think that's all for now. Uh, Yeah, it is. I'm done. Till next time.